This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following speech, the Vocation Reformation, is embodied in the Latin words post tenebras lux. Join us as our speaker, Dan Van Ufflin, explains these words and their significance. So I'd like to talk about vocation today, but before I do, I want to talk a little bit about the Reformation. Three years ago, I had a, an amazing opportunity uh, to go to Europe with three friends. We visited the sites of the Protestant Reformation. We started in uh, Wittenberg, Germany, where the Reformation began. We ended our tour in Dortrecht, where 400 years ago the Great Synod was held. One of the places that we visited on our trip was Geneva, Switzerland. And of course, we went to Geneva because this is the place of John Calvin. And when we went to Geneva, we found in that city a massive, 330-foot-long Reformation wall, they call it. And smack dab in the middle of the wall are four giant statues that four tourists are standing below. And you'll see these are the giant figures of Geneva. On the far left, you have William Farrell who brought the Reformation to Geneva. Right next to him, you find John Calvin. Next to him is Theodore Beza, who took over for Calvin in Geneva, and next to him is John Knox. And what's fascinating about this wall is that from one end of the wall to the other end, there's a Latin phrase. You can just see a letter on either side of those four figures. The phrase is post tenebras lux. After darkness, light. And it's the motto of the Reformation. We went into John Calvin's church in Geneva, St. Pierre's Cathedral. And when we went inside the church, I had to, you know, I'm as proud as Ponch here standing right next to John Calvin's great pulpit. It took incredible self control not to sit in John Calvin's chair. <laughs> But when we went into one of the chapels of the church, we found up on the wall those three words again. Post, tenebras, luck. After darkness, light. Well, what was that darkness? For centuries, the Roman Catholic Church tried to turn off the light of God's Word. They buried the Bible so that people couldn't understand the doctrines of grace anymore. And as a result, people stumbled in spiritual darkness. They believed that their, their works merited with God. They worshipped God through stained glass windows and relics of martyred saints and the high drama of the Mass. They were taught that the work of common people didn't really amount to much. But the work of priests and bishops and monks, that was valuable. And the church was governed by a 
thoroughly wicked pope who claimed to be the mediator between God and men. 500 years ago, his name was Pope Leo X, and he was famous for saying, let us enjoy the papacy since God has given it to us. The church lived in spiritual darkness and ignorance. But post-Tenebras, lux. After darkness, light. And what was that light? That light was God's Word. And 500 years ago, more or less, 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on the castle church door of Wittenberg And Thesis 62 of the 95 Theses said this, The true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. That was the light. And then four years later, exactly 500 years ago this year, Martin Luther stood before the assembled might of the entire world And he said those famous words, My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Here I stand. The Word of God was Luther's light, and this light brought him and the other Reformers joy and peace. And when Martin Luther saw the light, he said, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. And that's the joy that we experience as God's people, as children of the Reformation. We rejoice in the light. We rejoice that God has given given to us His Word. And there's so many things that we celebrate when it comes to the Protestant Reformation. Sola Scriptura, justification by faith alone. But it seems to me that there is a doctrine, there's a teaching of the Reformation that in some way, I think is, is forgotten. Maybe not forgotten, but it's not emphasized, I think, like it should be. And it's vocation. There was a beautiful truth rediscovered at the time of the Reformation, and it was the doctrine of vocation. Vocation is a calling. It comes from, the word is, comes from the Latin, vocare, which means calling. So a vocation is a calling. And vocation asks certain questions. It asks the question, you know, who is the caller? If it's a calling, who's the caller? What is the calling? And who are called? And I want to answer a few of those questions here tonight, but I want to start with this one. Who are the called? Who has a calling? Do ministers have calling? Well, you know they do. Street Church just called Reverend Engelsma. And he answered that call. Do teachers have callings? Do farmers have calling? Do carpenters have calling? What about truck drivers? Doctors? Factory workers? Tile setters? Salesmen? Bricklayers? Landscapers, excavators, 
Do mothers have calling? What about children? What about grandparents? Widows and widowers? Old saints in the church? Citizens of a nation? Do they have callings too? Do some people have callings? Or does everyone have a calling? For centuries, the medieval church taught that the spiritual life requires withdrawal from secular life. Only full-time church workers have calling. That's what was taught in the Middle Ages. The works of bishops and priests and nuns, their work has far more valuable, is far more valuable than the work of farmers and masons and mothers. But Martin Luther and John Calvin demolished this wrong thinking. And they emphasized instead the priesthood of all believers and the importance of glorifying God and serving the neighbor in every calling. This was the lux. This too was the light of the Reformation. The Reformers made this discovery when they went back to the light, when they went back to the Bible. They found texts like this. Exodus 20, verse 9. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. They read 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. As God hath distributed to every man as the Lord hath called everyone, so let him walk. They looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11. Study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hand. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 10. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. And for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. When they read Genesis, they found that God called Adam to be a gardener in paradise. In Exodus, the Holy Spirit equips a craftsman named Bezalel to build the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit fills him to build the tabernacle. In the Psalms, we learn that even a doorkeeper in the house of God is called and blessed. In Proverbs, we find that a virtuous wife and mother has a price far above rubies. In Nehemiah, God calls a, a cupbearer to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The New Testament shows us that Jesus was a carpenter. Luke was a doctor. Paul was a tent maker. Matthew was a tax collector. This biblical reformation, vocation, Discovery was exhilarating. It was, it was exciting. It was a breath of fresh air. It was a reminder to God's people that every calling is honorable insofar as it is performed for God's glory. Luther said that God milks the cows by means of the milkmaid. He said that a, a farmer hauling a wagon load of manure is the work that God lays upon him. Luther said that a father changing his child's dirty diaper 
can be an act of holiness. And I thought of that the other day when I changed my daughter Dina's pants. It sure didn't feel holy. But it was a necessary act of service. Luther said that, and this one's for the kids, listen carefully. Luther said that a child doing his chores outperforms the best of monks. The Reformers taught that every lawful vocation is honorable. Listen to a few of the Reformers. Martin Luther. The works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household task, but that all works are measured before God by faith alone. William Tyndale said, you know, the father of the English Bible, said, there's a difference betwixt washing of dishes and preaching the Word of God, but as touching to please God, none at all. William Perkins, maybe not a household name, he's the father of the Puritans. William Perkins said, the action of a shepherd in keeping sheep is as good a work before God as is the action of a judge in giving sentence or a magistrate in ruling or a minister in preaching. And John Calvin said, no task will be so sordid and base provided you obey your calling in it then it will not shine and be reckoned very precious in God's eye. What's interesting is that Luther and Calvin, when they talked about vocation, they, they each used a different um, metaphor, a different picture to drive home their idea. And together, if you take Luther and Calvin, they both emphasized something important about our vocation. When Luther talked about vocation, he had this really neat picture that he used. He said, a vocation is a mask of God. He liked to use the analogy of a mask. And now don't think about these lousy medical masks that we've been wearing for too long. But Luther was talking about a mask. Not one of these, one of these. And he said, your vocation is a mask of God. Here's Luther. All our work in the field, in the garden, in the city, in the home, in struggle, in government, to what does it all amount before God except child's play, by means of which God is pleased to give His gifts in the field, at home, and everywhere. These are the masks of our Lord God, behind which He wants to be hidden and to do all things. What Luther meant was that God works through our vocations, our jobs, our duties, to bestow gifts on others. Whatever your vocation might be, God is at work, hiding behind the scenes, if you will. God works through our vocations to bestow gifts on others. And He blesses us through the vocations of other people. 
That was his point. In that sense, our vocations are masks of God. I like how Gene Veith, fantastic book, if you're looking for some good reading, Gene Veith wrote a book called God at Work. And in the book he says, summarizing Luther, he says, when God blesses us, He almost always does it through other people. The ability to read God's Word is an inexpressibly precious blessing. But reading is an ability that did not spring fully formed in our young minds. It required the vocation of teachers. God protects us through the cop on the beat in the whole panoply of the legal system. He gives us beauty and meaning through artists. He lets us travel through the ministry of auto workers, mechanics, road crews, and airline employees. He keeps us clean through the work of garbage collectors and plumbers and sanitation workers. He brings people to salvation through pastors and through anyone else who proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. The fast food worker, the inventor, the clerical assistant, the scientist, the accountant, the musician, they all have high callings used by God to bless and serve His people and His creation. By using this analogy of a mask, Luther was really emphasizing the calling that we have to serve our neighbor in whatever work we do. Our motivation should be to serve our neighbor. Luther said, God doesn't need our good work. But our neighbor does. It's through our vocation, our callings, our work that God blesses His people. First Peter, the apostle, gives direction to the church in various callings. And then after he talks about all these different callings, Peter says, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Our liturgical forms get at the same thing. If you read the form for marriage, form for marriage says this, Since it's the God's command that the man shall eat his bread in the sweat of his face, Therefore you are to labor diligently and faithfully in your calling, wherein God hath set you. Why? That you may maintain your household, honestly, and likewise, have something to give to the poor. Serve in your calling for your household and the poor. Our form for the ordination of elders and deacons says, let him that has stolen steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the things which are good. Why? That he may give to him that needeth. Ephesians 4.28 Each of you, doing these things in your respective callings, shall receive of the Lord the reward of righteousness. God gives gifts to the needy through our vocation. He gives gifts to us through the vocations of other people. We pray for our daily bread. How does God answer us? Through farmers and food packagers and grocers and bakers and butchers and fathers and mothers who prepare the food. 
for the table. Luther's right. Vocation is a mask of God through which he blesses us and in which we must love and serve our neighbor. So that was Luther's focus. Calvin used a different analogy. John Calvin, when he talked about vocation, he said, your vocation is is a sentry post. It's a post. You've got a general. You're a soldier. And he gives you this post. Now stay in your post and serve him there. That That was Calvin's point. Calvin said, The Lord bids each one of us in all of life's actions to look to His calling. For He knows with what great restlessness human nature flames, with what fickleness it's born hither and thither, how its ambition longs to embrace various things at once. Therefore, lest through our stupidity and rashness everything be turned topsy-turvy, He has appointed duties for every man in His particular way of life. And that no one may thoughtlessly transgress his limits, he has named these various kinds of livings callings. Therefore, each individual has his own kind of living assigned to him by the Lord as a sort of sentry post so that he may not needlessly wander about throughout life. Your vocation is a sentry post. The text that that Jeremy read tonight There were eight verses in that text. We're not going to reread that now. But the word calling is mentioned nine times in those eight verses. And the idea of the text is captured in the selection that I put up on the slide. But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. brethren. Let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. You've been given a sentry post. Abide there. Serve with God. So, put the two together. Heidelberg Catechism gets at the same thing. Grant that we and all men may renounce our own will, and without murmuring obey thy will, which is only good, that so everyone may attend to and perform the duties of his station and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels do in heaven. You put Calvin's idea of the mask, serve others. and Calvin's idea, Luther's idea of the mask, and Calvin's idea of the sentry post together, you have really the full package of vocation. We're called to serve God, to love God, and the neighbor. Luther's focus was wear your mask, love your neighbor. Calvin's focus was stand at your post, do your duty. William Tyndale captured both of these things beautifully. Both the idea of the mask and the post. And Tyndale said, Let every man therewith wait on the office wherein Christ hath put him. That's the post. And therein serve his brethren 
That's the mask. Let every man of whatsoever craft or occupation he be of, whether brewer, baker, tailor, vittler, merchant, husbandman, refer his craft and occupation unto the commonwealth and serve his brethren as he would do Christ himself. The Reformation taught us that every lawful calling is honorable insofar as it is performed in love for God and the neighbor. It taught us that God blesses his people through vocations, both ours and others. And when this light of biblical vocation broke through the darkness of vocation reserved for a sort of a a religious elite, it transformed God's people. And it helped them to see that their work, their work, whatever that work was, mattered in God's eyes. It had value. They were called to it. It was pleasing to God. And this knowledge filled them with joy. Joy in all their labor. Ecclesiastes 5 verse 19 says that for a man to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. When Luther explained Psalm 111, he said, Surely anyone should laugh in his heart for joy if he finds himself in a situation that God instituted or ordained. He ought to shout and dance as he thanks God for such a divine act. Because he hears and is assured that his position is full of honor and adornment before God. Now, This means that a servant, a maid, a son, a daughter, man, woman, lord, subject, or whoever else may belong to a station ordained by God, as long as he fills his station, is as beautiful and glorious in the sight of God as a bride adorned for her marriage. All of a sudden, people of Reformation Europe saw their work as valuable, sacred. They were filled with joy in it. And they started to work hard. Maybe you've heard of the Protestant or the Calvinist work ethic. That's a, that's a byproduct of the Reformation. And that's, that's vocation in action. The the countries of Protestant Europe started to flourish once these teachings of Luther and Calvin sunk in. I want to make a few practical applications to you tonight about vocation. And the first thing that I want you to know is that your vocation is sacred. Your work is sacred. I want this truth, I want it to grip you in a way that it probably gripped the Protestants of Europe 500 years ago. Maybe you're not used to thinking of your work this way. I'm convinced you should. It's a powerful 
encouraging, motivating, life-changing perspective. Your vocation, whatever it is, is a sacred thing. Do you ever feel like you're just sort of spinning your wheels at work? Like that your career is unimportant? You ever sort of wake up in the morning and think, I've got to go out into work today. It's just boring. There's really no purpose to it. Do you dread going into work? Do you fall into the trap of thinking that your job is just a means to make a few bucks so that you can put food on the table? A friend of mine texted me a while back and described his job as boring bookwork. Another friend of mine told me that the purpose of his job was simply to to make enough money so that he can give it to the schools. That's the reason for his work. And not long ago, uh, a painter came up to me and said, Hi Dan. May God bless you in your calling as a teacher. And I said, thanks. And may God bless you in your calling as a painter. And he laughed. And I was struck by that. Why didn't he see value in his work? Why didn't he see his work as a painter as a calling? Why don't some people see that their work is important? The truth is that that all of our vocations are sacred. Catholic Church wanted to say there's some callings over here that that are secular and there's callings over here that are sacred. But the Protestant Reformation demolished this thinking. Just reference those quotes I read before. It's It's an honor. It's a privilege to labor at a task appointed by the Lord. And I know you might be thinking, but maybe you don't understand my job, my career. Scripture teaches that even ordinary, mundane, undesirable work is sacred. What about ordinary work? I'm a church history teacher. I'll be right up front with you. Most of my heroes are ministers. But as I walk my way through church history, I find so many beautiful examples that I try to bring out to my students as well. Beautiful examples of of godly people serving the church. God using Ordinary work for his glory. I think, of a, I think of a slave girl named Blandina who died as a martyr and her story inspired the ancient church. She was a slave. That was her vocation. I think of Tertullian, the, the defender of the faith who was, a, who was a lawyer. I think of you know, the great church father Augustine whose mother Monica, had such a profound effect on his life. In the Middle Ages, the Bible was preserved by by a librarian 
named Alquin. And millions of people have, have been led to glorify God through the music of a composer named Johann Sebastian Bach. What about mundane work? Mundane work. I don't know if there's any farmers here. Likely there are. But maybe you have a, a, a tendency to think of farming as being mundane. And Isaiah 28, while God is pronouncing judgment on Ephraim, God describes in great detail the proper way to plant and cultivate and harvest. Doth, let me read a bit. This is the work of a farmer. Doth the plowman plow all day to sow? Doth he open and break the clods of his ground when he hath made plain the face thereof? Doth he not cast abroad the fitches and scatter the cumin and cast in the principal wheat and the appointed barley and the rye in their place? For his God doth instruct him to discretion and doth teach him. For the fitches are not threshed with the threshing instrument, neither is a cartwheel turned about upon a cummin, but the fitches are beaten out with a staff and the cummin with a rod. Bread corn is bruised because he will not ever be threshing it, nor break it with the wheel of his cart, nor bruise it with his horsemen. And I really don't have any idea what any of that means. That's not my vocation. But after describing this, the work of a farmer, the work of a, a farmer in the field, God says, this also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. The mundane task of a worker in the field, in all of its detail, is of the Lord. It's sacred. It's just as sovereignly decreed and directed as God's judgments exercised upon the nations. I'm a member of Hope Church, West Michigan. Our pastor is preaching a series of sermons on Nehemiah. And I was struck a couple Sundays ago when he got up to Nehemiah chapter 3. All the different people. It's a long chapter that, that basically lists a bunch of people's names. People that God used to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And there's nobles there. There's high and, and mighty. There's lowly people. There's, there's people working there with their daughters. And smack dab in the middle of that chapter is a verse that says, but the dung gate repaired Malchiah the son of Rechab, the ruler of part of Beth-Hakarim. He built it and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. This had to be the worst part of the wall to build. Right by the, by the city sewer. And yet God, for the church of all ages, records the name of Melchiah, who did that work. proper view of vocation should fill us with contentment in our work. 
enthusiasm in our work, and purpose in our work. It's true. Our work is often bewildering and frustrating and disappointing, stressful, humbling, frustrating. I mean, before we left our house tonight to come here, my wife reminded me that we had to do the janitor work over at Covenant. And I grumbled a bit right before a vocation speech. She had to set me straight. (laughs) It's so easy to start complaining about our work. But armed with a biblical view of vocation, John Calvin was able to say, each man will bear and swallow the vexations, the weariness and anxieties in his way of life when he has been persuaded that the burden was laid upon him by God. Be content in your work. The burden was laid on you by God. Luther was in the backyard washing diapers and he was getting mocked. And he reflected on his tiring, humbling vocation as a married man and, and, a, and a dad. His words are classic. He said, Now observe that when that clever harlot, our natural reason, takes a look at married life, she turns up her nose and says, Alas, must I rock the baby, wash its diapers, make its bed, smell its stench? Stay up nights with it. Take care of it when it cries. Heal its rashes and sores. What then does Christian faith say to this? It opens its eyes. Looks upon all these insignificant, distasteful, and despised duties in the Spirit. And is aware that they are all adorned with divine approval as with the costliest gold and jewels. It says, O God, because I'm certain that thou hast created me as a man and hast from my body begotten this child. I also know for a certainty that it meets with thy perfect pleasure. I confess to thee that I'm not worthy to rock the little babe or wash its diapers or to be entrusted with the care of the child and its mother. How is it that I, without any merit, have come to this distinction of being certain that I'm serving thy creature and thy most precious will. Oh, how gladly will I do so, though the duties should be even more insignificant and despised, neither frost nor heat, neither drudgery nor labor will distress or dissuade me. For I'm certain that it is thus pleasing in thy sight. God, with all his angels and creatures, is smiling. Not because the Father's washing diapers, but because he's doing so in Christian faith. Be content with the work that God gave you. But be more than content. Be enthusiastic about it. I know a a piano repairman up in West Michigan. This guy lives and breathes his calling. I mean, he gets into a house 
and he just can't stop talking about his love for music. You almost want to pick it up if you don't play the piano. He's so enthusiastic about it. I mean, and then he'll use the opportunity to talk about the glory of music and how it's, it's such a wonderful way to praise God. He's enthusiastic about his work. That's the way we should be about our work. And we should strive for excellence no matter what we're doing. This is a sentry post that God called us to. Let's strive for excellence in our work. Colossians 3, verse 23, Whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In his book, Work, Daniel Doriani, another book I recommend, by the way, I've got to read you this quote. This is what he says about excellence in our vocations. Chefs, architects, designers, engineers, artists, teachers, and gardeners should also strive to be true to their craft. Even a police officer can direct traffic with flair. Martin Luther King Jr., I'm not a big fan, but this is a great quote. Martin Luther King Jr. captured this idea when he said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted, or Beethoven composed music, or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the host of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper. Contentment, enthusiasm, excellence. Your calling is a sacred one. I'll make another point about vocation too. This is one that I often forget. You have many callings. The truth of vocation is much broader than your, than your day job. Most of your callings, you don't get paid for. We have callings in the workplace, but we have callings in the church, ministers, elders, deacons, ushers, men and women in the pew, you name it. We have callings in the state as citizens. Maybe we hold some sort of an office. We have callings in all different spheres of life. And don't forget the family. Fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers and grandparents. Those are all callings that we have. So our callings are, are diverse. They're diverse. Belgic Confession gets at this too. This is a, this is a visual from uh, Tim Challey's book. Visual theology, and it, it, it gets at this idea that our, our calling is, is in many different areas, and we have many different callings towards our co workers, our family, strangers, neighbors, friends. Belgian Confession says 
We believe that the Father, by the Word, that is, by His Son, hath created of nothing the heaven, the earth, and all creatures as it seemed good unto Him, giving unto every creature its being, shape, form, and several offices to serve its Creator. We've been given several offices, callings. Our calling includes our callings include the sentry posts that we have in various spheres of life, but they also include what we might call the little things. The little things. We can easily forget this. Our problem is that if you're anything like me, you like to think big. You got big ideas. We want to be appreciated. We want people to notice what we're doing. We want to change the world. We want our work to be noticed. I read an article recently called Think Little. It reminded me that Jesus spent his three year ministry with 12 disciples in a remote corner of the Roman Empire. And Jesus calls us to care about the little things. He calls us to give a child a cup of cold water. To guard against idle words. Just, just an idle word. Jesus calls us to be careful not to despise little ones. To be faithful over a few things. He calls us to care about the least of these. In Luke 16, verse 10, we read, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Over and over, Jesus stresses this point. The seemingly little, seemingly little, insignificant, ordinary, day-to-day obligations of our lives are sacred calling. Make your bed. Help with the dishes. Take out the trash. Prepare a meal. Visit an old woman in a nursing home. Mow the lawn. Clean the garage. Do your homework. Comfort a friend. Play the piano. Be an usher at church. Read a book to your kids. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31 says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. Listen to Calvin. The devil has so blinded men to believe that in little things, they don't have to worry whether God's honored or served. And this is accomplished on the pretext that such things are of the world. When a man works in his labor to earn his living, when a woman does her housework, when a servant does his duty, one thinks that God doesn't pay attention to such things. And one says they're secular affairs. 
Yes, it's true that such work relates to this present and fleeting life. However, that doesn't mean that we must separate it from the service of God. If a chambermaid sweeps the floor, if a servant goes to fetch water, and they do these things well, it's not thought to be of much importance. Nevertheless, when they do it offering themselves to God, such labor is accepted from them as a holy and pure oblation. It's important to remember our multiple callings in the various spheres of life. We can easily forget this. If you're anything like me, you often focus on one vocation at the expense of others. We tend to think that certain callings are more important than other callings. We tend to forget that God calls us to serve others in the calling that He lays upon us at any given moment and time. We need to balance our many responsibilities. Guilty as charged. I hope my family forgives me when I spend too much time on my schoolwork or my church work. And I don't balance those other vocations that I have. A couple of years ago when I was preparing for this speech for the first time, I was sitting in my chair, you know, getting ready for my vocation speech. I had my notes out, my books out, and everything. I think my computer was probably on my lap. And my son Isaac came up to me. And uh, he came up to me with his favorite book, The Diggingest Dog. The Diggingest Dog. And he came up with a book and he asked me to read the book to him. And I was like, no, I, don't bother me right now. You know, I, I got this, doesn't he understand I have this important vocation speech to write? And I'm haunted by this image of him walking away. And I remember going back to my work and then looking up and looking over at him and thinking, what strange irony is this? That I'm writing a speech on vocation. And my calling here and now is towards my son. And I send him away. So what did I do? I said, Isaac, come here. You know, the speech can wait. And I pulled him up in my chair and we read the book. Jean Veith writes about a mother and her baby. The mother was part of a Bible study where, you know, you're, you were told you really had to buckle down and you had to focus on, on, on reading the Bible and make sure you're ready for this Bible study. But this mother had a, a child who kept waking her up and bothering her, and she got so frustrated because she just wanted to focus on her Bible study. And the baby kept bothering her. But Veith says, after a while, she came to understand the doctrine of vocation. Taking care of her baby was what God at that moment was calling her to do. Being a mother and loving and serving her child was her vocation. Her divine calling from the Lord. She could read the Bible later 
She didn't have to feel guilty that she was neglecting spiritual things. Taking care of her baby was a spiritual thing. Can you relate to this woman? She was forgetting that every vocation is sacred. But she was also forgetting that we must not neglect what God puts in our path at any given moment. That's our calling. I think of the, uh, the Good Samaritan. Right? There's, a, there's an injured man on the road. Two guys walk by. A priest and a Levite. I mean, if anybody's got important callings, it's these guys, right? They were probably going to the temple to perform some sacred work there. They walked right by. But what was God calling them to do at that time in that place? He laid before them, He lays before us an immediate responsibility to love and serve the neighbor in all situations. This is vocation. It's standing at your post. It's wearing your mask. And our calling is always to serve our neighbor. Serving others in every sphere of life is the essence of vocation. Loving service in vocation gives glory to God. It delights Him. And through our vocations, God blesses His people. Allow me to make one more application. I'll be brief. Last time I gave this speech, I, I saw my wife in the back of church going like this. In her vocation as my, my helper, she was telling me that I was going way too long. So I better wrap this up here soon. But I, I feel this is important. And our schools, I want you to appreciate, I know you do, but I want you to appreciate the fact that vocation is the goal of our school. It's really why our schools exist. This year we celebrate some anniversaries. It's the 75th anniversary of Hope School in Michigan. But you're celebrating some school anniversaries down here too, I understand. The 60th anniversary of Protestant Reformed Christian School. It's the 20th anniversary of Heritage Christian High School. I know that because I was here 20 years ago. These are milestones. This is an appropriate time to think about our schools and to think about why we have them and what their real value is. Our schools are being attacked right now too. So it's time to, it's time to think about how special our schools are and what a gift God's given to us in our schools. The goal of Christian education is vocation. It's a life lived fully in every domain according to God's Word in Christ-like service to others and for God's glory. Our precious schools are worth all of the blood and the toil and the tears and the sweat that this community can muster. Following in the footsteps of the Reformers, Herman Hoeksema said, the purpose of the school 
is to prepare the student for a life in the world that's good before God. To give him sound instruction in the various subjects he must know. To assume his place in the different domains of life. That's vocation. David Engelsma, in his wonderful book, Reformed Education, said, Our goal in the school is a mature man or woman of God who lives in this world in every area of life with all his powers as God's friend servant, loving God and serving God in all of his earthly life with all of his ability. And then I went back to your, to your school's anniversary book and I discovered that in your constitution for your school 60 years ago, you know what they wrote? Our sovereign, triune, covenant God has from eternity chosen and in time forms a people unto Himself that they may stand in covenant relation to Him and live to His praise in friendship and loving service in all spheres of life in the midst of a sinful world. And this. The training of the covenant children in the school as well as in the home and in the church must serve to prepare them to follow their lifelong calling to reveal the glory of their God in a life lived from the principle of regeneration by grace. May that glorious vocation goal spur you on as you look to the future. Our schools are academic boot camps for vocation. Where our kids are trained to live as salt and light in every vocation, no matter what work God calls them to. Parents, the great sacrifice that you make for Christian education of your children is worth every penny. Treasure these schools. Value the teachers that stand in your place as they train your children for their vocations. Teachers, and we need teachers, you must require hard work and excellence and cultivate the unique talents and abilities of all your students. The ones that excel academically and the ones that don't. The other day, a student told me, I don't see the point in school because I'm not going to college. I just want to be a builder. And I didn't know whether to, to cry or scream. Have we left the impression that the purpose of Christian education is simply to prepare them for college? Not everybody is going to college. God doesn't call everybody to go to college. Just a builder? That's a high sacred calling. Your school exists to prepare you for whatever vocations God has in store for you. You need to know that. Study in school confident 
that you're being prepared to serve the Lord in whatever work you do. You're being shaped in ways you're totally unaware of now. Luther said this, when schools flourish, all flourishes. And what did he mean? Vocation. When schools flourish, the students are trained to take up their work and all of the different spheres of life for God's glory. All flourishes. John Calvin has this beautiful prayer on preparing to go to school. And it ends like this. Finally, let the only end at which I aim be so to qualify myself in early life that when I grow up, I may serve thee in whatever station thou mayest assign me. Amen. And I have one more story in conclusion about a friend of mine. And this story says more than everything I've said tonight. A friend of mine named Reverend Titus. You may have heard of him. He's a pastor in Myanmar. Myanmar is not a very nice place right now. There's been a military coup in the country. They've brought about a reign of terror. There's people that are being executed on the streets. Just last week, someone was shot just a two-minute walk from Reverend Titus's house. There's strict curfews imposed on the people there. The military has limited public gatherings. It's restricted internet access. It's drugged inmates and sent them to torch people's houses at night. That's all happened this year. The poverty level is, in an already poor country is, is increasing, skyrocketing due to, due to all this chaos and the pandemic. And most of the people in Reverend Titus's church have lost their jobs. As for Reverend Titus, he spends himself in his calling as a pastor. He comforts his family. He trains up a man for the ministry when he can. When he gets a spare moment, maybe when he's locked in his house, he translates the Bible into Burmese. Here's a man that is zealous in his calling. Recently, he's had heart problems, all kinds of complications. I serve on the Myanmar Committee at Hope Church. And at one of our meetings, we usually try to Skype. We, tr we try to video conference with him. And at one of our last meetings, we asked him if there was anything that we could do for him under these circumstances. Listen to what he said to us. We're so thankful for your prayers and support. The Lord graciously provides all we need. My people sometimes ask me why I don't run away. They say, 
You have many friends around the world that you could go to. Your life could be so easy. But no. This is my place. This is where God put me. I want to die here with my congregation. Reverend Titus never used the word vocation. He never talked about a mask and a post. He didn't have to. Post tenebras lux. That's the light of the Reformation. Thank you.
Father in heaven, we worship thee as the God who never slumbers or sleeps, the ever-working God who governs and upholds all things in thy creation. And we come before thee as those who are frail creatures of the dust, easily weary, burdened with the responsibilities of this life. We pray for strength and for encouragement, faithfully to serve thee in our callings here below. How privileged we are that not only hast thou chosen us and called us to be thy sons and daughters, given us a place in thy kingdom, but also thou hast been pleased to give to us work to be busy in. We're thankful that thou art pleased to use us in the service of thy kingdom and thy church and to bring glory to thy name. We pray, Father, that what we've heard tonight might by the working of thy spirit in our hearts encourage us in our work Give to us contentment in that. Give to us enthusiasm in our work. Grant grace, Father, to strive to carry out that work in excellence in the service of the neighbor and to the praise and the honor of thy name. We're thankful, Father, to be the children of the great Reformation. We pray for strength and for grace to show ourselves as such. And especially do we pray for the future generations of the church, for the children and the young people of our homes and families, that thou wilt continue to work in them a love for the church, a love for the precious heritage that's been handed down to us. Pray, Father, for thy care and keeping of us in this night. Forgive us of our sins. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to them to be notified as future messages are published. We welcome you to join us on Sundays for worship at 9.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org. Also, you can follow us on our Hope Protestant Reformed Church Facebook page. And you can email the Reform Witness Committee with any questions or feedback at hope rwc at gmail.com. Thank you.